we just want to say right now, just simply welcome. Um, welcome to the exchange. We're so glad you're here. And um, this is a humbling day for us. This is kind of a weird day for us. Um, we've been praying for you guys, as weird as that might sound, and we've been praying for this day for, for a long time. Um, I know you guys got to see that little little kind of story, I guess, of what's going on with us, but um, we just want to br- briefly kind of share a story with you guys and welcome you into it. But it was in the fall of 2015 that this idea of just like God calling us to plant a church in South Florida just kept on stirring our hearts. And, and really the reason being, we, we really do believe the greatest way to reach people is by planting local churches. That rather than just maybe going to, to one, like just planting local churches in the community. And so this desire started stirring our hearts in the fall of 2015. And we were talking and we were praying. It's almost like we couldn't stop thinking about it. We were trying to pray like, God, take this desire away. We don't want to do this. We like what we do. We like our role. Like we like everything. And just we could not leave that thought. And so is in January of 2016, we're talking and praying, and we actually wrote down uh, January 21st, 2018. We wrote down today's date two years ago in January. And we're like, okay, Lord, let's just see if this, let's just see what happens. And I remember going to my boss in January of 2016 and said, hey, we feel called to start a church on January 21st, 2018. I'm like, what am I doing right now? Like, I'm I'm basically going to get fired. He's like, all right, then just go. So I was kind of afraid of like even voicing that, like just saying that feels weird. And so it's really humbling to stand here Honestly, in January 21st, 2018, this has been a prayer for a couple of years now. And uh, you guys saw the journey. It turned into prayer meetings at our house in July of 2016. And it turned into some prayer walks. It turned into some Sunday barbecues and gatherings. And this last season, you saw in like September, we started having Bible studies. And our hope was to kind of build the community, build community groups, build kids' ministry, kind of go through a build phase of getting, getting things in order so we can have more of like a, hey, dearful community, we have something for your kids. And we, have, you know, we wanted to have just some things in place. And all I can say, and it's funny, just, you know, Diego shared this first, because I didn't know he's going to, but really this season for us has been, God has been faithful, even when we were faithless. Even when we've had so much doubt, God has been so faithful. And here's all I know. I really do believe God loves South Florida, wants to reach South Florida. And we're just humbled to be part of There's so many phenomenal churches that love Jesus here, that we'd highly encourage and say they are awesome. And we're just humbled to be one of them in the community. And so we just want to say, guys, we're glad you're here. We're humbled that you're here. Um, we hope that you want to be a part of this community to fight to make disciples in this area, to reach lost people, to not just have superficial relationships, but to really get to know each other and do life together in the name of Jesus. And so that's what we're here. We just want to share a little bit. And this is my wife, Kimber. And I just want her to share as well just kind of our heart and our story in this process. A verse that the Lord brought to my remembrance when I was thinking about today is the verse. It's in Matthew and it's in Luke, but it's Matthew um, 633, I believe, and it says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto it. And it's a verse that the Lord gave to Josiah about 10 and a half years ago, right before we got married. He was about to propose and it was a verse that the Lord laid on his heart just to remember to seek him first, to seek his kingdom first. And over the years of our marriage and years of ministry and life, that's been a verse that has been a foundation for us and a foundation for our marriage. Um, And it's a verse I continually go back to that the Lord brings me back to when things start to get out of whack or or I start to lose focus to seek him first. And so I feel like it's so appropriate for us as a church too. like, that's what we want this church to be about. We want it to be all about Jesus. We want to be always seeking Jesus. We want to be seeking the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do anything apart from him, apart from Jesus. So that is our foundation here. We We want to be known as the church that's just all about Jesus. Um, We want to be a community that's all about his word. You know, this is the only truth that we have. We want us to uh, be in his word, to be growing in his word, to be learning and teaching his word. Um, We want to be in community with each other. We're not meant to be alone. We can't do life alone. We can't. We need to be in community. We need to be encouraging each other, 
building each other up, edifying each other, correcting each other lovingly. We need each other, and um, we want to build each other up so that we can reach the community. That's what, that's what we're all here for. You're going to see that this is our year of mission, but it's not just a year of mission. We're forever on mission until we get to eternity, and there are so many people that right now in the Deerfield community, in South Florida, in the whole world, um, are going to be uh, spending eternity apart from Jesus Christ, and that's not acceptable, and we should be stirred up and really burdened by that, and so I hope and I pray that we're all about Jesus, his word, community, and that we um, are on mission together to reach those that, that desperately need Jesus and are lost. So that's a little bit about our heart and about us as a church and, and what we hope for. Yeah, and, and again, we can't do that alone, obviously. So let me just take a moment. Just Can we just thank those who've just been a part of this, helping serve, giving, being a part of this? Can we just clap for them and get up for them because they've worked so hard, honestly? Um, you know, just our team needs to know how thankful we are for them and humbled we are by them just being a part of this. And so, um, and it, again, the body of Christ is not two people. We, we need many to get this work done. So, um, listen, we're blessed by so many churches in this area. Here's what we want to do. I just want to just pray, in a sense, and like, we know this is Jesus' church. He is the head of the church. This is not our church. This is Jesus' church. So we just want to kind of pray and just acknowledge that and recognize that. So would you guys just bow your heads, close your eyes. We just want to pray and just start off by recognizing whose church this is. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, who on the truth that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, on that we build this church. That Jesus, you are the foundation, that God, you're the center, that you are the alpha, that you are the omega. That Jesus, this is your church. Thank you for being that good chief shepherd. God, thank you so much for your great love for us. Lord, we ask that throughout the years that your will would be done in this community, God, that more churches would be planted that God would reach Muslim communities, we'd reach uh, the Caribbean communities, the South American communities, the European, God, we just ask that this would just go forth into all the world. Lord, we ask that this would be a place where we can raise leaders, make disciples, that families and marriages can be restored and healed, that kids can grow up hearing the gospel, Lord, that God, you just fill us with your spirit. This would not be by might, nor by power, not by our strength, but by your spirit. That Jesus, anything good that happens, people would praise you. That, God, if people leave this place, all they remember is that Jesus is so good. That, Lord, you'd be on the forefront of their minds. So, Lord, we just surrender everything about this. We ask that you would lead it and guide it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, we're in Mark chapter 1. All right, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are starting Mark chapter uh, 1. We're starting the book of Mark today. So if you would, raise your hand. We want to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But raise your hand, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, let me kind of share briefly with you guys, uh, as Kimber said, and, and you saw the slide, um, we're looking at this perspective of Mark as Jesus on mission. So let me kind of explain. We're going to take the year, and hopefully, hopefully not, hopefully not two years, we'll see how it goes, but we're going to take the year to just focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. We want to begin by studying Jesus. We want to look at what he said, what he did, what people thought about him. So we just want to focus our attention on Jesus. So I'm going to show you all my cards. In case you're in here today and you're not a believer, here's our goal. It's simple that you'd fall in love with Jesus. And for those of you who know Jesus and believe in Jesus, that you'd fall in love with Jesus more. And again, I would, I would just ask this, in case you're skeptical in your heart towards Christianity, in case you're skeptical in your heart towards, towards all of this and what's happening, I would just ask that, would you please consider Jesus? Just consider Jesus. Would you consider going through this book with us? And if you're here and you're going to hear one sermon and walk away, I would ask, would you just go through this gospel of Mark and, and journey with us for this year? That's what I'm asking. 
that you would just take this year to consider the life and the person of Jesus. That is our desire in this process. So, Mark chapter 1, let me give you some context, what's going on, the point of this book, uh, and just walk through that a little bit. Whenever you start a new book of the Bible, I'd write this down. Whenever you start a new book of the Bible, you look for the author, his audience, and his agenda. All right, the three A's of a new book. The author, who wrote it, what's he like? The audience, who's he writing to? And the agenda, what's the point of this? All right, so the author, who is the Gospel of Mark written by? Paul, you're right, Paul, no. Obviously Mark, right? It's obviously written by Mark. Now, um, in case you're like, well, I didn't know that. Uh, Mark is actually mentioned in the book of Acts. He's mentioned several times. This is not just some random guy. If you, we'll throw the verse up here for you, but it's in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Actually, Mark's mom was highly involved in the church. It says, uh, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So this guy, Mark, would go by the name John Mark. John being his Hebrew name, Mark being his Roman name. So if I ever say John, forgive me, just because I've been studying John Mark. But this is written by Mark. Now Mark, according to the book of Colossians, is actually Barnabas' cousin, which is interesting. You guys remember Barnabas in the book of Acts? Barnabas was the encourager. Barnabas was the guy going around encouraging people. He's the guy that looked at Saul, who became Paul, and said, I know this guy used to kill Christians, but he's one of us now, I promise. And that'd be a terrifying thing to get behind, because what if he's just, you know, incognito? What if he's really just trying to get into the church to more persecute the church? But Barnabas goes, no, no, he's one of us. So Barnabas, the encourager, he's the cousin of John Mark, of Mark. Now, if you guys read the book of Acts, maybe you know this, Paul and Barnabas used to go on these missionary journeys, right? And they'd go and share the gospel and plant churches in different areas, and Mark came along with them. John Mark came with them. And we're told that actually John Mark, Mark, wanted to stay in one of the cities, and Paul and Barnabas left. And later they reunite, and Mark wanted to go with them again. And maybe you remember the story. Mark, Paul goes, Mark's not coming with us. Mark came with us, and he abandoned us. We're not taking him again. And Barnabas, being his cousin and being the encourager, is going, no, we should bring him. This is a great guy. And they had a, it says they had a big dispute, like a, a dispute. They shared many words. There's a fight. There's an argument. If you guys remember, Paul and Barnabas literally separated. They went their own ways because of this guy, Mark. So Mark is, is in the scriptures. You're like, wow, that's a great story. Like, it just ends there. No. Paul actually, in the last letter that he wrote before he, before he was really killed, before he was beheaded in Rome, the last book Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. And Paul says this in 2 Timothy, I think, 4.11. Uh, Paul writes, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. <laughs> Something changed in, in Paul's heart. Maybe he just grew in forgiveness and grew in love, but eventually we see, obviously, that Mark and Paul were restored. And he's like, bring Mark with me. I need him. He's useful. And then we know that Paul was not too later after this book. He was beheaded in Rome. And the point is this. So this is our character, Mark. Um, there's some people who believe he actually kind of puts himself in the gospel story, and we'll, we'll talk about that later, that maybe he's in Mark chapter 14 or 15. But this is where we see the life and the journey of Mark. A fun fact, and I'd write this down in case you are taking note and you have those little handy-dandy journals, notebooks. Um, hopefully you've got one of those Mark journals. But write this down. It's really believed by the church fathers, Eusebius, Irenaeus, that the gospel of Mark was really Peter's gospel. So here's what that means. We believe that Peter according to church history and church fathers, met with Mark and shared with him the stories of Jesus. And so what Mark is doing, he's actually taking Peter's firsthand account of his time with Jesus. So the gospel of Mark, according to, really it's kind of agreed upon amongst all church fathers that this is actually kind of Peter's gospel. That Mark penned it, but it's from the stories that were passed down to him from Peter, which I find really interesting. I feel like you'll see little Peterisms in the gospel of Mark, right? And, and I, I love this because actually we're told in 1 Peter 5, 11, uh, that Mark was, he calls, Peter calls Mark his son, his son in the faith, 5, 13. 
he says, and so does Mark, my son. There, there was like, just like Paul had Timothy and Paul invested in Timothy, Peter had Mark, and he invested in Mark, and he was a son in the faith. And so there's a lot to this person of Mark, in case you've ever like studied Mark and want to know Mark. And here's what I love about Mark. Um, people have called this the ADHD gospel. All right. This is kind of the gospel where Mark's just all over the place. Like he's so excited, you know, and he's kind of the guy that's like squirrel and like loses his mind. Like he just goes fast. There's actually this word 41 times in the Greek. There's this word immediately. And you'll see this a lot. In 41 times, Mark says immediately, immediately, immediately. It's almost like he's obsessed with that word. It's almost, have you ever been around a person who's nervous and so they use the same word over and over again? Like, I literally wore that. I literally ate that. And you're like, I'll literally punch you in the face. We say literally again. And they just say the same word. Like, they're just kind of like nervous. Mark's word was immediately, immediately they went there. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately. And I really think that there's, there's a focus. And here's the point. Most of, really, the scholars will say this, that Mark is not really focusing so much on the teachings of Jesus, but the power and the life and ministry of Jesus. So when you read Mark, it's kind of like, here's Jesus' power. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. You decide. So it's not so much on the teachings. There are some teachings, obviously, in Mark. But it's more of look at the acts and the power and the display of Jesus and look what the demons say about Jesus and look what this person says about Jesus. And Mark's almost like, you decide who is Jesus. So I love Mark because it's focusing less really on the teachings and more on the gospel of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the story of Jesus. And it's believed that Mark is actually the first gospel written so another thing to write down is Mark was the first gospel written. Out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark being the first written. And again, something to point out or to notice this, um, but again, this was influenced by Peter. Mark is taking this down, writing it down. And so we have our story here, Mark chapter 1. Let's look at verse 1. All right, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And again, Mark is one of the only Gospels that doesn't record the genealogies of Jesus. Matthew does, Luke does, and John does from a divine standpoint. But Mark does not include the Gospel. He just goes for it. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a great way to begin your book, right? He says in verse 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed, clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately... Coming up from the waters, he saw the heavens parting or tearing open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We're going to pray in a second, but I love that we see the Trinity involved in Jesus' baptism. That Jesus is being baptized, the Father speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit depends upon him, and we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. Amen? Let's pray and let's uh, give this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you again. And we just ask that you would speak. And that as we go through this book, Jesus, that we would fall more in love with you. Even for Christians, God, who've maybe heard these stories before, let it become fresh to us, God. Let it become like new to us. 
Lord, I ask for any doubter in this room who, who still is not sure how they feel about you or the church or what this is all about. Jesus, we ask that just who you are and what you've done would pierce their hearts, that all of history revolves around you, Jesus. And so we thank you and we give you this time in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. So who is Jesus? Like, how would you describe Jesus? How do other people define Jesus? If you were to go on Google right now and just type in who is Jesus, you and I would get some of the craziest and the kind of fun things about Jesus. Like, people love to define Jesus the way they want to define Jesus. And there's so many different versions of Jesus. There's, like, different caricatures of Jesus. Do you guys know what a caricature is? Have you ever gone to a theme park and like sat down and had some like artist draw you and like they kind of exaggerate a feature of yours? So if I went and got my drawing, like my forehead would be like this big in the picture, right? Like whatever like body part you might have or feature you might have, a caricature, might, uh, an artist might sit down and exaggerate a certain portion of you, right? Like you've seen like pictures of Angelina Jolie and her lips are, like this big. Like caricatures, like take a feature and exaggerate it. And there's these different caricatures of Jesus and not necessarily in look, but just in philosophy of who he is. There's like this diff- these different ideas of Jesus. They'll take an element of Jesus from the scriptures and they'll blow it out of proportion. You know what I mean? So for example, there'll be, there'll be people who look for Jesus' teachings on money and they'll take a verse and be like, see, Jesus is a socialist. Look what he says about money. Socialist Jesus, right? There's other versions of Jesus. There's hippie Jesus. Like Jesus is just meek and mild and long flowing hair and he's holding a lamb. He's just like, peace, love. And he's just like, right? And it's like Jesus would never condemn sin. How could you think about Jesus? Jesus is okay with everything and anything. And it's like his first word was repent in ministry. I don't know what you're, you're talking about. Or there's like the rock star Jesus where people like to portray Jesus as a rock star in some ways. Like, well, yeah, Jesus just ate with sinners. That means like we should go and just do coke with people, right? Jesus did it. Like, no, he didn't. There's people that just take Jesus and they make him how they want him to look, Right? And again, we could go on and on. There's, there's genie Jesus, my good luck charm Jesus. I mean, we love to take an aspect of Jesus and we blow it out of proportion. And Mark is trying to present to us the real Jesus. Mark is saying, let's get back to who Jesus is. Let's get back to the story of Jesus. And here's the ironic thing. And something all of us need to consider. My, this is not just secular people. Christians make their own Jesus. We are guilty of this. We'll take an aspect of Jesus and say, this is my Jesus. And it's like, well, what, is, what does the gospel present? What do they show us about Jesus? How do we get a full understanding of the person and work and life and ministry of Jesus? Because the problem is when we make Je- Jesus in our image, he's no longer Jesus. See, sometimes we'll make Jesus after what we think he's like. And so know what we do? We have a Jesus who can't challenge us. We have a Jesus who always agrees with us. Whatever I think about a topic, Jesus must think that about that topic. And it's like we're making Jesus after our own image. And then you'll never have a Jesus challenge you, push back, grow you. They'll never be maturing. They'll never be that as long as your Jesus is always you, but you disguise him as Jesus. And so Mark is presenting to us the real person of Jesus. And this is a story we, we, I love that we've read. It's the intro. He's telling us, like, kind of from the very beginning, who Jesus is, who came on the scenes before Jesus. So I'm going to help do this because this helps me as I walk through a text. But we're going to see here in this text, we're going to see him talk about John the Baptist who's preparing the way. We're going to see them in the wilderness and we're going to see them in the waters. And so if you want to write this down, you have the way, the wilderness, and the waters. And it's a story we're going to kind of flow through, all right? The first being John, who's preparing the way. So look at uh, first and verse one. We've got to start here. Mark chapter one, verse one, one more time. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's just stop there, because that's just so good and so packed, right? Mark is saying, this is the gospel. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story we've all longed for. This is the story we've all hoped for. This is the story we were created for. This is the beginning of the gospel. Now, let me just really clearly share some things on this. Um, This was the first gospel written. 
This was the first gospel being passed around in circulation. I, I want you guys to understand something that's interesting. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, Paul writes down about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, you can ask these lists of names. And it was, and there were 500 others who saw Jesus at once. Paul wrote that within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus. The cool thing is this. You could actually talk to people who'd be like, I saw Jesus, I ate with Jesus, I spoke to Jesus, I was with Jesus. Well, after 20 years, some of them were dying off. And now there's, there's becoming fifths or fairy tales about who Jesus is. They never had to write anything down because you could always go to someone and ask. Like if someone was like, yeah, Jesus, I remember Jesus. He would like fly around from preaching engagements. Like, no, he wasn't. I was there. They had people who could like hold, the, who could stand for that. But now there came a time where like we got to write this down and we got to document this. We got to make this really clear. We got to make sure everyone knows the gospel of Jesus for the generations to come. And so they're saying, this is the gospel. And I, the, the, weird, the funny thing to me, if you look at this, look down, the beginning. Um, in the Greek, it's just this word beginning. It's just this one word. I can't say it, so I'm not going to try. But it's just beginning gospel. It starts off beginning gospel. Now, we don't have first century ears. Like, we wouldn't make the, the connection. But if you hear this and you're a Jew or you're not a Jew and you, or you understood a little bit of the Jewish faith, the way the Bible starts off, right, in Genesis 1-1 is beginning God. Literally, in Hebrew, it's just beginning God. And then you're hearing beginning gospel. And your ears would just make this correlation between the two that just like creation began with God, redemption begins with God. And this idea that this is, we're not just, it's not just the gospel. It not, it's not like Christianity started in, in the year zero with Jesus being born. Like it didn't start then. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Beginning God, beginning gospel. And it is a weird way to begin our books, like, or to begin a book, right? You and I could never, never, our senior year writing an English paper, be like, this is the beginning of my paper. I am beginning my paper now. Do you like my beginning? Like, we couldn't write that. Be like, what are you doing? You're just trying to take up space. But this idea would take you back to the very beginning of the gospel. And I want, I want to say something. Mark is doing something really unique, by the way. This, Mark's creating a new genre of writing. We call these the gospels. This didn't exist. This is like a new style of writing. So John's like beginning something brand new. Or John, John Mark. See, I told you to do it. Mark's beginning something brand new. Mark is actually beginning just the gospel in this way. He's like, this is the gospel. This is a, new st this is a story that we've heard, but we need to make it really clear. And so it's the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel, obviously we've heard this gospel simply means good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And again, I have to say this because I know I can do this, but Jesus Christ is not his name, right? He is Jesus of Nazareth. That's, that's kind of how you'd introduce someone, where they're from. His title is Christ, or Christos, or in Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah, right? The idea is this is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Promised One, Jesus the Fulfilled One, Jesus the one we're all been waiting for. John, or Mark, John Mark, Mark is beginning this way by saying, this is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Fulfilled One, the one we've all been looking for. And he goes, and he's the Son of God. And not just like we are sons of God, but like he is God the Son. And he's saying there's something unique about this person of Jesus. And I want, to, I want us to understand this. When Jesus came on the scene, you guys, it's not like people knew who he was. There wasn't like, oh, that's Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like they didn't know that. They, they, people had to discover that in their own timing. And I love this because if there are doubters or if there's people in this room who don't know, it's okay. 
Like, I want to say, bring your doubt, bring your unbelief. Like, many people did bring their doubt to Jesus. Many people did bring their unbelief to Jesus. And it didn't all find out at the exact, at the exact same time. There's almost like layers and layers of, oh my gosh, this, is, this can't just be an ordinary man. This must be God in the flesh. There's different revelations at different times for people where they saw this. So, I don't know if it will be today for some of you. I don't know if it will be six months or a year, but there's these revelations of, oh, Jesus is not just some ordinary man. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And I love this. I, we're not going to get to this verse today, but in verse 15, Jesus' first recorded words in the gospel of Mark, we'll throw it up here, Mark 1.15. Jesus, first words out of his mouth, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark says this, this is the gospel. And Jesus is like, my first words, believe in the gospel. Believe in the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus. The gospel is a message, and it's really a person. The gospel is content, but it's also the life and story of what Jesus accomplished. It's not just the teachings. It's not just what, he's, what he accomplished. It's both. It's the teaching, teachings and what Jesus accomplished. Now, before Jesus comes in the scene, and before he, he, he makes himself known, there is someone preparing the way. There's always someone preparing the way. So look at verse 2. Verse 2 writes, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Before a king would come, there's always a messenger. And this needs to be, this needs to be understood. In ancient Roman times, or even like in, in a Hebrew culture, before there's someone mighty or powerful had authority, before they'd enter into a new village or a new city or a new area, there'd be someone coming in and saying, hey, the king's coming hey, make our road straight. They'd actually, this is real, they'd actually go into a city and they'd actually try to rebuild the roads because the roads would get, you know, it's not like our roads. There'd be rocks and stuff. They'd actually try to rebuild the roads and make them straight. Like the king's coming, we want him to be smooth and easy entrance in. And so this person, this messenger would come to make the roads clear, to make the path straight, literally. And John is like, I want to make this really clear. I want to make this really clear who's coming. And it's, I love this because, guys, it, and even in Roman times, the, 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 again, Mark is writing to Roman culture. He's writing to the Romans. But whenever a Rome, a, someone Roman won in war, they would send a messenger into the town to say, hey, listen, that battle that we fought over there, we've won. And they'd actually be, this is the gospel. The gospel is not a Christian word. Do we get that? The gospel is a word that we took and hijacked, and I love that about us. We can take things, we hijack them, and redeem the words. They're like, hey, the gospel was when an, a herald or a messenger would say, we have the gospel. We, we, they'd say it in, in Greek, so I'm not going to be cool and say that. But they're like, we have the gospel, the good news. We have won. That battle over there, it's over. That battle that took place over there, we've won. They've been defeated, and we are victorious. And the heralder or the messenger would basically come in, not to say, not to give them advice on how to conquer, but to declare an announcement that there's good news, and we have won. And so the gospel is not so much advice on how to live life. It's not advice. The gospel is not advice. It's an announcement that we have won in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has won. And John came on the scene to actually prepare the way. John's like, let's make this road clear. Let's make this road straight. We've won. Christ has risen. Christ has conquered sin and hell and death. We've won. And the gospel is an announcement of good news, and this is what John the Baptist came in to do. John the Baptist came in on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus, because before a king would come, there would always be a messenger. And so Mark is taking the first century listeners and hearers back to everything they understood. This is not some ordinary guy. Here's his heralder. Here's his proclaimer. His name is John the Baptist, and then we get in the description of John the Baptist, and he's a weird guy, and I love him. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John comes on the scene. He's in the wilderness. He's in the Jordan. And I got to just point this out. This passage right here is just dripping with Old Testament uh, symbolism. It's just dripping with this crazy imagery. So there's things you and I, we didn't grow up in the first century. We didn't grow up in probably a Jewish culture and context, and we understand this. This is just dripping with things from the Old Testament. So we have some key imagery. So write some of these things down. Here's the first one. It's the wilderness. I want you to understand something. This is so unique. John is preaching in the wilderness. Let's be clear. This Greek word for wilderness is desert. It's a desert. It's barren. All right, we've been to Israel. We went through the Judean desert into the Red Sea. It's desert. I mean, it is hot. It was hot in February when we met, when we went. I mean, it is the desert, right? And you have the Jordan River going through, and he's in the, now, I don't, if I were out preaching in the wilderness, I don't think any of you would come. I know you might, oh, kind of like you, but no one would come. Listen, for some reason, John just drew this huge crowd, and he's in the wilderness, and here's why this is important when I say put up the wilderness. Here's why this is interesting. Uh, the wilderness is the place where the people of Israel first really met God. It's when the people of Israel are taken out of slavery from Egypt, and they're brought through the Red Sea into the wilderness, into the desert. And the wilderness meant a lot to Jews. The wilderness is where the law was given. The wilderness is where they realize we cannot live on our own, that we need someone outside of us to provide for us. The wilderness is where they complained and whined and said, God, why did you bring us here? You brought us here to die. And, and they realized that God would have to be the provider in the wilderness. See, the wilderness is where things go to die. And the wilderness is also the place where you meet God. And this is so important for us because it's so often in our lives, it's in the wilderness we meet God. It's in the wilderness when things are dry and barren and you feel like life is falling apart and this makes no sense. I thought pursuing this sexual relationship would bring me happiness. I thought pursuing money would fulfill me and you still feel dry and empty and that's the wilderness. And God brings us so often to the wilderness to encounter us, to encounter him. God's like, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness to encounter me. So here's the idea. They go into the wilderness to meet John the Baptist, really to encounter God, just like they always did. They always encountered God in the wilderness. And John's like, I need to remind you of your roots. Let's go to the wilderness. Let's go into this dry and barren area. And just like our ancestors met God in the wilderness, we're going to meet God in the wilderness. And I know that a lot of us here want to get out of the wilderness, but so often that will be the place where we meet God. Amen? Don't despise the wilderness. That's where God shows up. That's where God provided manna and quail and water from rocks. Like, that's where God does crazy, awesome things. And yet, so often, we want to get out of the wilderness. And this is where they go. They go to the wilderness to meet God. It's funny. In in Psalm 63, David was fleeing from his son, and he's in the Judean wilderness. Psalm 63, verse 1. This is what it says. David writes, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. David's in the wilderness, fleeing from his son. He goes, God, I'm physically thirsty. I'm physically drained. But more importantly, I'm spiritually thirsty. My flesh longs for you. I thirst for you, O God. The wilderness so often reminds us what we're really created for and made for. It reminds us that everything we thought would satisfy us will will never satisfy us. They'll only be found when you encounter the true and living God. So John's in the wilderness reminding him, going, hey, Hey, Jews, hey, from Jerusalem, we're going to go back to the wilderness and encounter God like we once did. So the first thing, first imagery is the wilderness. Second thing, which is interesting, is John's outfit. All right, John's outfit. Now, let's just talk about this, because Mark's not like, by the way, he wore camel's hair and like a belt. Like, why? why? Like, why do you mention that? 
Like, no one wrote like that. Why does he even say that? And here's, here's what he's doing. He's actually bringing us back to an Old Testament imagery. Write down in your little fun journals, 2 Kings 1.8. 2 Kings 1.8. We'll throw the verse up here for you. In 2 Kings 1.8, speaking of Elijah, it says, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It is Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite. It's a great tribe to be from, the Tishbite tribe. Um, this is pointing back to Elijah. I want you to understand this. John's not just, the John the Baptist is not just putting on camel's hair and a leather belt to be like, oh, this is stylish. I'll bring this back in. This was kind of the outfit of a prophet. Zechariah talks about this being the, the outfit of a prophet, of just some sort of hair of an animal with some sort of leather belt. This is what Elijah did. Now, this is what John is representing. Now, I want to point this out too. If you ever study Elijah the prophet, he was always in the wilderness and around the Jordan. Like, he's actually the one who caused the Jordan to part. There was also, you remember, he took his, like, towel, touched the waters, it part. He was in the wilderness, and he's around the Jordan. And this is John the Baptist. Now, here's what's interesting. Elijah was the one that all the Jews were looking for before the Messiah, right? All the Jews were saying, before the Messiah comes, we know there has to be Elijah. And here comes John the Baptist in his outfit, right? And the point is, before the Messiah would come, there's going to be Elijah. Now, for all of you Bible nerds who know this, and that's cool, if you remember in John chapter 1, people went to Elijah, and they're like, hey, are you Elijah? Or they went to John the Baptist and said, are you Elijah? And he's like, I am not. They're like, ah. He's not, John, he's not Elijah. But in Matthew 17, they ask, they're asking Jesus about John the Baptist, and he goes, I'm speaking about John the Baptist, who's really the realities of, uh, he's Elijah. He's a representation of Elijah, Matthew 17, verse 12 and 13. So Jesus affirms him as Elijah. Who, who wins, John the Baptist or Jesus? Jesus. Okay, so we know that the whole point of Elijah was to usher in the kingdom, was to bring in the kingdom of God. And so John the Baptist is wearing this outfit, and what is he doing? He's ushering in the kingdom of God. Mark is not just saying he wore this for the sake of saying that. This would cause Jews to go, oh my gosh, just like Elijah, Elisha's here. Oh, wait, does that mean the Son of Man is here? Does that mean the Messiah is here, the one we've been waiting for? And the whole point is yes. He's ushering this in. Again, before a king comes, there's always a great heralder or messenger or someone preparing the way, somebody making it known. So John was there to bear witness of Jesus. Next is this, and write this word down. This is another thing. This is not a Christian thing. This is a Jewish thing. It's called baptism. Baptism. We did not invent this. We did not create this. And this is so interesting because there's some unique things about John's baptism. Let's start with this. It's a baptism of repentance for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to point this out. So repentance, let's just talk about that. Repentance means a change of my mind and my action. There are some people who repent and they change their actions, but their mind isn't made up. There's some people who change their mind, but they haven't changed their action. According to how the, the Hebrew you know, believers describe repentance was it's my mind and my heart fully turning back to God. It's a full reconciliation back to God. And so he's, he's preaching the baptism of repentance. Now, this is what's interesting about this. John's baptism was different from Jews' baptism. You guys know maybe this, maybe not. Uh, Jews would never get fully baptized. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a part of the Jewish faith, you would go to mikvah, you would get baptized, fully baptized, covered in water. Jews would never need to be baptized. Why? They're, God cho they're God's chosen people in their mind. There's like, I don't need to confess sins. I'm one of God's. I'm the apple of God's eye. Why would I need to get in that water with a bunch of dirty Gentiles? They never got in the water. John is saying, and notice where they came from, Judea and Jerusalem. John is saying, I don't care who you are, what your pedigree is, everyone needs to be baptized. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone needs to experience the forgiveness and repentance of sins. It's not just for Gentiles. It's for everyone. 
And John's actually calling the Jewish people, and this, is, this would be so hard if you're a Pharisee or somebody studied the law, and you're going, oh, oh, like Jews are getting baptized. No, no, like this would freak them out. And yet they were doing it. Everyone was just doing it, getting baptized for the remission of sins. Now, again, I think that speaks of high volume of you and I. This applies to everyone righteous. That means no one is too good for God. No one is too far away from God. All of us need to be baptized in that water. And we, we continue this tradition because this, this is something that really baptism and communion are the two things Jesus left us to continue in his name. I mean, we don't really have a lot of like religious things we do, if you think about it. But we have two institutions God has left us, and that is baptism and communion. And so when someone believes in Jesus, we're like, you want to get baptized? You know, we can do it immediately. It's cool. We, don't like, we can put it on a calendar. We can do that, but we can do it also immediately. And I would love for people to just go, I believe in Jesus. Jesus got baptized. I want to follow in his footsteps and get baptized. Like, yeah, let's go. Like, this is a beautiful thing that was happening. And not only that, not only were Jews getting baptized, but please listen to this and, and hear this. John was baptizing them. In Jewish baptisms, there was never someone in the water with you. You always did it alone. And it's almost as if John is saying, do you guys understand? Like, that's, this is weird. He's shaking things up. He's going, come with me. I'm going to baptize you. John's saying basically this idea that you're not going to be saved at your own hands. You're going to be saved at, the, at another person's hands. You can't be saved because you just dunked yourself in water. This is speaking of how you're saved at the hands of another. That someone else has to play a role in this. That you can never save yourself. You can never baptize yourself. There's someone else who baptizes us in a sense and brings us in. And we are saved at the hands of another. Not that baptism saves us, but that's what it's speaking of. That you're saved at the hands of another. So he said, hey Jews, I don't care if you, you grew up in a really good Jewish home. You need to be baptized. You need to experience the forgiveness of sins. And John says something really unique, again, that we would not notice. But John says, there's one coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. In the Babylonian Talmud, and this is real, this is fun from just studying, there's actually a saying that says rabbis can ask their pupils, they can ask their students to basically do anything except take off their shoes. Because even for rabbi, like, that's, like, that's like what a slave does. I'm not going to have my servant, ta- I'm not going to have my, my pupil, my student, take off my shoes. So basically, a rabbi could say, you can, you, I could ask you to do anything, but I'm never going to ask you to take off my shoes because that's just gross. Like, that's what slaves do. And John goes, taking off the shoes of Jesus is too much of a glory for me. Like, that's too high for me. What, what a slave, what a, what a pupil can't do for his rabbi, like, I can't even take, I can't even do it because it's just too good. It's too awesome. I used to read that phrase like spiritual exaggeration. Like, oh, this guy's just being like weird. He's like, I can't even take off his shoes. Like, no, that would trigger something in all their minds. And oh my gosh, like, so you're saying he's that worthy and that glorious? And in verse 9, what happens? In verse 9, Jesus comes on the scene. And I, I just want to focus on these three verses, and we'll close out with just some, some crazy truth here. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So John went from, I can't even take off your shoes to like, oh gosh, I'm going to participate in your baptism, right? And that was like, that was hard for John. And I want to point this out. It says the heavens parted and a voice came and the dove came, or the spirit like in the form of a dove. And, And here's what's interesting. Jesus got baptized in the Jordan River. And if I don't mention this, I think I'm not doing you full justice. But the Jordan River is where they cross over from the wilderness into the promised land. It's where Joshua was with, he was with his priests, and once they put their feet in the water, the Jordan River parted. The Jordan River is where Elijah put his towel and the river parted. And here's Jesus in the, in the water, and the water doesn't part, but what parts? Heaven. This time heaven parts. Heaven opens up, and God speaks. And it's actually, it's fun to study this because it literally says heaven was torn apart. 
like heaven was ripped open and a voice comes and the Holy Spirit comes. And whenever you see the heavens open, you see this also in Ezekiel 1, 1. Like whenever the heavens open, you know that God's either going to speak or act. And this is so much more than God speaking or acting. It's that God came. The heavens are ripped apart. And this is so, again, like I just can't imagine seeing this. And the voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And what John said came to pass that, hey, I might baptize you with water, but this guy, Jesus, the one who's mightier than that than I, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and here's something that we just got to talk about as, as Christians. It's not just about being baptized with water. That we do need to be baptized with the Spirit. That that shouldn't freak us out, that thought of that term. That just like Jesus needed the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, if Jesus needs the Holy Spirit, do we not need the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And it reminds us that the work and ministry Jesus did on earth was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's, here's kind of what I want to share for us. We might have a picnic. We might have speakers. We might have shirts. None of that matters. We need the Holy Spirit. This is not that great, obviously. <laughs> we need the power of the Holy Spirit. The point for us is, like, we don't want to do this without the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do ministry without the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't do ministry until the Holy Spirit descended upon him. We don't want to do this without the Holy Spirit. Like, we're asking you guys to join us in prayer for that, saying, God, let us continue to work in the power of the Spirit. Like, this is something that I, I don't want to take light. I don't ever want to come to God with my arms full and be like, God, I got this. God, we got this. This is coming to God as a child saying, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your spirit. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. You know, it's Zechariah 4, which we prayed, but it's so true. It's like, God wanted to do a great work in Zechariah 4, and you can read about that, and the context is beautiful. But he says, this work's not going to happen, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. The only way this will be accomplished is by my spirit. For us, we're going, God, please reach people. Please save people. I don't know how to save anyone. I don't know how to Wanna, like, you know, do you want to say, like, I, I can present the truth and I have to go, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take the truth and just penetrate their heart and open their eyes and let them believe in you. And it's like, this, apart from God, I can't do that. We need, to be a holy, we need to be a church that is just desperate for the Holy Spirit. A church that is desperate for God to move into work. That is saying, we don't want to do ministry until the Holy Spirit descends on us. And I'll tell you, like, our times of prayer in our, in our house have been so sweet for us. I feel like when we're done, we're like, oh my gosh, I just got a spiritual bath. Like, I feel so clean, right? We're just praying for you, praying over the city, praying over this area, and it's like, God, pour out your spirit. We're going to ask that like, you guys would join us in that way. We're going to even have a couple people who are praying at 9 a.m. here on Sunday morning. It's just going to be praying. We're going to ask, do you want to be a part of that? We're going to pray for an hour. We, we want you to join us in that. We can't do this without God's spirit. Amen? This is, this is not a physical thing that we're doing here. We might set up chairs, we might have coffee, we might do physical things, but this is something that's supernatural. Obviously, like it's, when someone says, I don't believe in miracles and they're a Christian, that makes no sense to me. I'm like, your salvation's a miracle. You were just dead and now you're alive. What are you talking about? Like, God's still at work, and that's not going to happen without the part of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's so interesting. Can I just point this out? And I think this is fascinating. Guys who study this, I, I've never seen this. Just, it's beautiful when you can dive a little bit deeper. When you study the baptism of Jesus, there, there's a scenario happening here that just points us to the cross and reminds us of the cross in a really powerful way. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, so you can see this. In Mark chapter 15, look at verse 37. And if not, you don't have the verses, we'll throw it up here for you. Mark 15, verse 37. And I'd write this down. The baptism of Jesus anticipates the cross of Jesus. All right, the baptism of Jesus anticipates the cross. In Mark 15... Jesus is hanging on the cross. Look at verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. Matthew says it this way, and this is what it's saying. He gave up the spirit. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, a Roman, 
who stood opposite of Jesus, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last. And he said, the centurion, truly, this man was the son of God. Just a few things to point out from John's, from the baptism of Jesus to the crucifixion of Jesus. First thing, we'll just throw up here and make this really quick, hopefully. At the baptism of Jesus, the spirit descended, right? Next, the heavens tore open. And then we see this confession of Jesus from the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the cross, simply put, it was the opposite. Not that the spirit descended, but he departed from Jesus. That when Jesus gave up his spirit, it, he, it says in, in Psalm 22, it talks about this on the cross that Jesus actually gave up his spirit. It's not that he ascended or descended upon him, but he departed. This time, instead of the heavens tearing open, the veil and the temple tore open. And there's another confession of Jesus. The confession of Jesus this time from an unbeliever, saying truly this man was the son of God. Now, it'd be fun to look at this more and study this more and, and see why the baptism points to the cross and G- the purpose of Jesus' coming was ultimately the cross. The point wasn't just to get baptized. No, no, love, Jesus walks into the water filled with sinners. Was it because he needed his sins forgiven? No. Jesus said, I have come to fill all standards of righteousness. The point is, Jesus came to identify with sinners. And the thought of Jesus getting into this water where sin was, the thought of like, wait, people's sins have like, they're just washing the water. And, and again, in a Jew's mind, this is dirty Gentile water. This is dirty Gentile sinning water, sinful water. And Jesus is like, I know and I'm getting in. I'm going to be covered fully in it. And really the baptism is pointing to the cross, saying, I will bear the weight and the sin of this world. And that is speaking and is pointing to the cross. And, and just, we'll focus on the, the, the second thing. What I love about the heavens ripped open and, and the father's like, this is my son. But not just that, on the cross it says the veil tore open. Now, from studying this, and you've heard this, but I just, I think this is so interesting. If you guys think of the temple, God's temple, that was the dwelling place of God. Understand this. There's a lot of different sects in the dwelling place of God. It's sad. You had the court of Gentiles. They couldn't worship with the Jews. You had the court of women. They couldn't worship with the men. You had all these different barriers between people and God in the Jewish temple in this time. And then you had the holy place where only the priest could be in a certain priest, certain times could be ministering certain duties. In the holy place, there was this veil. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where God's glory and his presence dwelt. And here's the idea. This veil that was in the temple, where the holy place was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, this veil would have two cherubim on it. And understand, these cherubim spoke of something else. What are cherubim? These angelic angels or beings. And I I have to point this out. There's something in the scriptures, and not to be super nerdy, but there's something in the scriptures called the principle of first mention, meaning whenever something's introduced for the very first time, we should pay attention. So cherubim, the first time it's mentioned in Genesis, in Genesis 3, we'll throw the verse up here, but in Genesis 3, it says, therefore the Lord God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden to the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God's like, I'm not letting you come back. There's an angel guarding this. One, because I don't want you to eat the tree of life and forever be stuck in your sin. So I'm doing this out of love. I'm guarding this out of love. I'm guarding you because I don't want you to be stuck in your sin and eat of the tree of life while you're in your fallen state. So God did that out of love. But two, because we've sinned now and separated us from God. And we can't have access to a holy, righteous God. And so there's this cherubim, there's these angelic beings guarding now entrance into the Garden of Eden. And now, in the book of Exodus, it says, take these cherubim, and I want you to draw them on the veil. So imagine in the temple, and don't get lost here, in the temple, there was that thick curtain, the veil, and there were these cherubim on it. There's these angelic beings on it saying, you don't have access to God. We're blocking you. Just like in the garden, we're blocking you. You don't have access to God. Because you're sinful, and God is holy, and there's no way you could have access to God on your own. 
So when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that veil ripped in half. And it says in Matthew from top to bottom. It says if the cherubim, the, the ones that guarded God's holiness, are saying, no, no, now you have access. The cherubim, the ones that protected God's holiness and fought for God's holiness and said, you don't have access, are now ripped apart and Jesus is like, you have access. You see, because heaven tore open, the veil tore open. Because Jesus came to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, identifying with us, now we can identify with him who lived a sinless and perfect life. He once identified with me, now identify with him. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this the gospel? It's not just a baptism taking place. It's not just a voice coming from heaven. It's confessing who Jesus was. All of this would take place at the cross in a different form. And God is so good to remind us that Jesus identified with us in this water so we could identify with him on the cross, that my sins have been paid for, my sins rest upon Jesus, and we know that three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave and was seen by many, and they gave their life for that truth, and that message spread orally, and it also spread through documents that are protected and preserved, and it's like God is so good to get this message out to us. And here we are, obviously, in Florida, sharing this message because this gospel has gone out. And it's incredible to see the gospel go east and go into Asia and go down in India. It's, it's incredible to see what the gospel is doing. And like Jesus said, it would happen that it would go to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're a part of today. And that's what we want to celebrate today. And our hope is this. We need to re-evangelize the gospel in our area. Would you agree? People think they've heard the gospel, but they really haven't heard the gospel. People think they know Jesus because they grew up in America, but they don't know Jesus. We're called to re-evangelize them. And that's probably just as hard. Because they're saying, hey, everything you heard, just wipe it out. Let's start over. <laughs> everything you think you know about Jesus, let's just start over. And we're saying, join us. Join us as we explore the life and ministry of Jesus. Amen? I just want a closer time in prayer and thanking God that he identified with us and that we can identify with him. So why don't you guys do this? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. We're also going to close in some worship right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you spoke from heaven saying this is your son. God, we thank you because your son gave up his life that we can now be called sons and daughters of God, that we are brought into the family. God, we thank you that you first identify with us, that you took the place of a sinner, and God, that we get to take your place in a sense that you have, we have your righteousness given over to us. Thank you. God, we just ask as we sing to you that not just be empty words on our lips, but God, let our hearts celebrate and rejoice in this fact that we are forgiven. And God, he who is forgiven much, loves much. And we want to love you much. We want to just sing your praises now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. In your wonderful name, amen. Let's worship.